for any Western journalist or human rights monitor or U.S. diplomat traveling to Saudi Arabia over several decades, it was pretty much de rigueur. If you wanted to really understand what was going on inside the kingdom, you got in touch with Jamal Khashoggi. When I started covering Saudi Arabia, one of the first things that you did as a journalist is you get Jamal Khashoggi's phone number. Ben Hubbard is a Middle East correspondent for The New York Times and the author of the book MBS about the crown prince. Because, you know, the kingdom would announce something that they were doing or some decision that the king had made and you're sort of trying to figure out what it means and you would call up Jamal and Jamal would answer his phone and he would say, oh, well, here's what I think. Khashoggi had come a long way from his days huddling with Osama bin Laden in the caves of Afghanistan. He had moved up the ranks of Saudi journalism, becoming the editor of one of the country's major newspapers, Al-Watan. Most importantly, he was that rare insider known for his connections to the royal family, and who was also readily accessible, pretty much to anybody. You know, you can go back to, you know, diplomats, journalists, um, researchers, almost anybody who worked in Saudi Arabia for probably a period of about 20 years. Everybody knew Jamal. You know, the, the guy was everywhere, and everybody has his phone number, and he used to talk to everybody, but he was seen as speaking for the royal family or speaking for the government most of the time. I was one of those journalists Hubbard was talking about. In the spring of 2002, as a correspondent for Newsweek, I visited Saudi Arabia to better understand the political culture that had led to the attacks on September 11th. And of course, I met with Jamal. He was one of a small delegation of Saudi reporters that government officials had arranged for me to meet in an outdoor restaurant in Riyadh. And while the meeting was relatively brief and uneventful, he stood out. Unlike others who were there who seemed to be wanting to spin me on the idea that their government was blameless for the horrific slaughter of 9-11, Jamal, courteous, friendly, solicitous, seemed more interested in what I thought. What were my impressions of this country? And most of all, what was I planning to write for Newsweek? It was clear that Jamal did not condone what his old friend Osama bin Laden had unleashed upon America. But it also seemed that he was just as concerned about what the attacks had done to the public image of his country, something he, like the high-level Saudis who wanted me to meet with him, was very much worried about. But if Jamal's attitude suggested his tightness with his government, there was also another side to him. An impish, at times rebellious streak, says his friend David Ignatius, the national security columnist for the Washington Post. So he just, he had that, how to put it, he had that burr under his saddle, I don't know what, quite what it was, that made him willing to take risks, that made him curious, and that I thought in the end, although he, he had a lot of, he was an Islamist, he, he had been a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, he still had that vision. I also thought there was something of the real journalist in him. And real journalism was not what Saudi Arabia was ready for, not by a long shot. In 2003, the year after I met with Khashoggi, Lawrence Wright, then working for a Saudi newspaper himself, picked up an alarming tip. A powerful Saudi prince was out to get Jamal Khashoggi. The chief editor of the paper took me aside in the hallway, always an indication that, you know, people felt that their conversations were being listened to. And he said uh, that Jamal was going to be killed. There was a lot of talk about that. And it was not long after that, when I went back to the United States, that I got a call from Jamal. And um, he felt that his life was in danger. What had Khashoggi done that had put his life in peril? 
For all his ties to the royal family, he had that burr in his saddle that Ignatius talked about, a journalistic urge to stir the pot. He had taken on Saudi Arabia's fundamentalist religious clerics with articles and cartoons that criticized and even ridiculed them. This did not go down well with one royal in particular, Prince Nayef, the dour conservative interior minister. Wright says Khashoggi was worried about the influence of the radical clerics and the high-level support they received, a stand that at one point even cost him his job as editor. He deplored the uh, the dominance of the clergy in Saudi Arabia. I remember one of the things that got him fired is that he published a cartoon of an imam with a suicide vest. And instead of a dynamite, there were fatwas in the pockets. <laughs> you just have to be there to know how incendiary that was. So he, you know, he had stepped out on a limb. But just at that moment, Prince Turkey picked him up and ferried him off to London, where he was essentially safe. Prince Turkey was Turkey bin Faisal, the suave, Western-educated royal who had for years been chief of Saudi intelligence, serving as point man for the CIA in the bankrolling of the Afghan war against the Soviets that Khashoggi had championed. Turkey had just been named the Saudi ambassador to the United Kingdom, and he hired Jamal as his media advisor. Having incurred the wrath of one high-ranking Saudi royal, Jamal was rescued by another. It was a pivotal moment in Khashoggi's career, solidifying his reputation as somebody who was inseparable from the Saudi regime. He was now an official government spokesman. It was an association that would hang over him until the time, eight years later, when Khashoggi, having returned to journalism, got caught up in a political revolution that inspired millions throughout the Middle East. putting him on a path that would ultimately lead to another clash with another powerful Saudi prince, this time a fatal one. I'm Michael Isikoff, and welcome back to Conspiracyland, the secret lives and brutal death of Jamal Khashoggi. This is episode four, A Revolution Crushed. When Jamal was posted to the Saudi embassy in London, he worked alongside a young man named Nawaf Obeid. You met him at the end of the last episode discussing Jamal's relationship with Osama bin Laden. Obeid is an academic who, like Prince Turkey, had gone to college at Georgetown and then went on to advanced studies at Harvard and MIT. Like Jamal, he was also a top advisor to Prince Turkey. And, as he explains, both he and Jamal worked closely together and they had a common mission. We are advisors to the former head of Saudi intelligence, working to better Saudi interests. We were all working for our country and for the establishment and for the king. Unlike Jamal, Obeid has remained loyal to the Saudi government. So perhaps some of what he has to say should be understood in that context. Still, he offers some intriguing details about Jamal's role at the embassy. In part, it was to cultivate relationships with important journalists and leak them stories that made the Saudis look good, their enemies look bad, and to protect his country from the taint of Jamal's old friend, Osama bin Laden. Jamal was the media advisor that was in charge of rebutting, coordinating all the responses 
and if need be, even doing and doing the leaks about Saudi Arabia's non-involvement in Al Qaeda. For example, the biggest thing we did, him and I, was the the failed assassination plot that Gaddafi had tried to do on uh, King Abdullah, and we had leaked it to the New York Times. I had it was in my house. We had done that. What Obeid is referring to here is a bizarre plot allegedly hatched by Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi in 2003 to assassinate Abdullah, then the Saudi crown prince, purportedly at a peak because they had gotten into a spat during a meeting of the Arab League. And involved in that conspiracy were two Saudi dissidents that are still here in London, including a guy that has been arrested since by the U.S. authorities and is serving a 25-year jail sentence. In part, says Obeid, the point was to discredit those dissidents in London, relentless critics of the Saudi government, by tying them to the plot. And Jamal was putting it together in Arabic to, to, get, to leak it to the Arab press, and my job was to put it together and leak it to the, uh, to the English-British press, and we did it together. I mean, it wasn't like we were always together, you see? Mm-hmm. So these are the kind of works we did together, and this one right. worked very well. It ended right. up on the front page of the New York Times. But Obeid says Jamal's role went beyond leaking pro-Saudi stories to the press. Because of his ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and his past relationship with bin Laden, he was assigned special missions. I mean, Jamal was in charge, you know, in some cases he was given missions to go do. I mean, secret missions, dealing with people, meeting people, meeting this. I mean, this is what Jamal liked to do. Explain. What do you mean? I mean, um, some very strange characters, especially dealing with with all these um, Islamist networks who were somehow mixed up. I'm going to use very specific words here because it's th- who were very much mixed up at the time with Al-Qaeda and with Al-Qaeda financiers. And they were Muslim Brotherhood, but yet they claimed they weren't Al-Qaeda, but monies were going. It was this very, this big uh, mesh of different um, individuals here in London, Paris, Switzerland, Italy, Sweden, you know, who Jamal knew. And there were some very nasty characters. And in some cases, you know, Jamal would, I, I, I don't know the, the, the details of who told him what, but he would go and have discussions with these people. And that was considered a mission. That was a secret mission. And it was a secret mission. I mean, and he loved doing this, you know. I mean, he would do, he would take trips uh, no one knew about. He was collecting intelligence. He was, that's right. Correct. Somebody else who was collecting intelligence in the Saudi mission in London was Mahir Mutreb. You may remember him from the first episode. He's the guy who, according to notes from inside a secret Saudi trial, confessed to supervising Jamal's murder in Istanbul. During those years in London, he and Jamal were colleagues on friendly terms, says Obeid. And we would go out for afternoon teas on usually uh, weekends or uh, Fridays after prayer. And we would go to the Four Seasons and would have our afternoon tea and talk and, you know. He was a young officer at the time, respectful, polite. He liked Jamal, talked a lot about his articles and, you know, that's how they got to know each other. And what was Mahir's job? So Mahir was, uh, was one of the intelligence officers mm. at, uh, right. at the station. He was, one of, he was one there, yeah. In 2005, Prince Turkey was named Saudi ambassador to the United States, and Jamal accompanied him to Washington, D.C. After a short stint in the U.S., Khashoggi decided to return to journalism, where he relished his reputation as the ultimate Saudi government insider. 
But then events in the Middle East started to take a radical turn. Those protesters in Cairo were chanting about Ayman Noor, a political rival of Egyptian strongman Hosni Mubarak. In 2005, on the eve of a presidential election, Mubarak had Noor, his main opponent, arrested and imprisoned, an act that seemed to make a mockery of Egypt's contention that it was holding a free and fair democratic vote. Although the U.S. had propped up Mubarak's government with aid and weapons for years, the State Department denounced Noor's arrest, and President Bush himself raised the issue publicly when Noor, after being briefly released, was thrown back into prison. There are many dissidents who couldn't join us because they are being unjustly imprisoned or held under house arrest. I look forward to the day when conference like this one includes Aung San Chi of Burma, Ayman Noor of Egypt. In 2008, Noor got an extraordinary visit in prison that would allow him to hoodwink his jailers. His visitor and collaborator in his deception was Jamal Khashoggi. That's Noor speaking in Arabic, talking to me about what happened the day Jamal came to see him in Egypt's notorious Torah prison. The two had known each other for years, but the Egyptian government barred journalists from the prison. So Noor and Khashoggi cooked up a ruse. They would tell prison officials that Khashoggi was a relative on his wife's side. It worked, and under the watchful eyes of the prison guards in the warden's conference room, the two men sat across from each other. As they had prearranged, each brought with them a box of cigarillos and placed them on the table. He had brought with him a gift for me, a pack of mini cigars. I brought with me to the visit an empty pack of mini cigars in which I had hidden my article. We switched. I put my pack on the table and he put his pack. They switched the packages. When we stood up to leave, each took the other's pack. And inside Noor's cigarillo pack, the one Jamal smuggled out of prison, was an eloquent letter to Barack Obama, then the Democratic candidate for president. Jamal translated it into English. Soon enough, it was posted on Obama's Facebook page. Dear Senator Obama, these lines, which I'm not certain will see the light or reach you, were written behind the walls of an old prison in the south of Cairo. Noor explained in his letter why the charges against him were a sham. The real charge is that I committed the crime of dreaming of change. Senator Obama, me and the generation I belong to in Egypt and in the Arab region, which views you as a gifted and inspiring model for dream of freedom and change, and look forward to hearing from you today, tomorrow, and in the future. That's an amazing backstory. I wish I, I, wish I didn't know it. That's Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's top foreign policy aides at the time. He remembered Noor's letter, but never knew, until I told him, that it was Khashoggi who smuggled it out of the Egyptian prison. But, Rhodes said, it's a reminder of the unique role that Khashoggi played in the events in the Middle East. He kind of pops up everywhere, you know. Um, and, and so to me, this story kind of captures just how much this guy was not just, you know, a journalist in Saudi, not just an opposition figure in Saudi. He was a real regional figure who was connected to everybody, particularly people that were in the different movements against authoritarian leaders. And so 
there's a kind of Zelig quality to his role over the last decade. Obama won the 2008 election, of course. God bless you, and may God bless the United States of America. Then, in February 2009, just a few weeks after Obama's inauguration, Noor was released. It was widely seen as Mubarak's gesture to the new American president. Sounds of happiness and rejoice. This was the scene as Ayman Noor met the media for the first time since his imprisonment. But it was also a preview of sorts of even more momentous events to come. Events that would rock the Middle East, inspiring Khashoggi's full political awakening, and in which he would once again play a crucial role. Either this is the first Arab revolution of the 21st century, or it will be brutally suppressed. It started with a seemingly strange incident. In December 2010, a Tunisian street vendor set himself on fire to protest the arbitrary seizing of his vegetable stand. Tunisians by the thousands took to the streets in protest. The protests kept mounting, and soon enough, the country's authoritarian president, Zine El Abidine Ben Ali, fled to Saudi Arabia. The demonstrators are protesting skyrocketing unemployment and corruption, and they're demanding the country's president resign. And demonstrations were spreading throughout the region, the Arab street rising up like never before in protests over decades of brutal, arbitrary rule, and nowhere more so than in Mubarak's Egypt. News of Mr. Mubarak's resignation drew a huge wave of honking and cheering in central Cairo, especially in the area around Tahrir Square, where demonstrators were in their 18th day of protests. For Jamal Khashoggi, it was an electric moment. As a young man, he had been enamored with the Muslim Brotherhood and its resistance to corrupt and authoritarian governments such as Mubarak's. Now that cause was merging with another one, more palatable to Western ears, a yearning for democracy, says his friend David Ignatius, who was in touch with him throughout this period. Jamal, one consistent theme from his Muslim Brotherhood days to his later journalist days was that he believed that the corruption that characterized the Muslim Arab world needed to be burned out by some force. And when he was a young man, he thought that force, that that flame that would purge the corruption was Islam. And I think over the years, Jamal came to have a view that it was democracy, openness, the things that journalists stand for, that would be the fire that would burn away the, the corruption. So when the Arab Spring happened, you had people in the streets risking their lives, demanding the overthrow of dictators demanding the chance to speak and, and, and be heard. For Jamal, that was a, a moment of deliverance. As the protests gathered steam, Jamal rushed to Cairo and visited Tahir Square. He met with political opponents of the regime in Noor's office and apartment. Like millions of the protesters, he began using for the first time in a big way the platforms of social media, especially Twitter. We are witnessing the events of the massive transformation in Egypt and a new roadmap for the region, he wrote for Al-Watan on February 13, 2011, and then tweeted out the article proclaiming how proud he was to have written it. When Mubarak finally stepped down at the end of the month, it seemed to Jamal and many others that it could open the door for change in the rest of the Arab world, a triumph for democracy. 
I asked Ayman Noor. What did the overthrow of Mubarak and the Arab Spring mean to Jamal? It represented to Jamal the dream of his life. The rest of the dream was for this change to spread to all other Arab countries, including his country. But it was not to be. Jamal's embrace of the overthrow of Mubarak did not go down well with his country's leaders, who saw in the Arab Spring a mortal threat to their own rule. And soon enough, Khashoggi started to get death threats sent to his Twitter handle, messages he saved with screenshots found years later on his iPhone by Turkish police. I hope, inshallah, I see you get killed at Tahrir Square. Can you just die and relieve people from your dirty face and your tweets that are dirty like your face? It was the first sign of what would become one of the crueler ironies of the Arab Spring. The same social media tools the protesters used to spread their message of democratic reform would soon be turned against them, with Jamal Khashoggi as one of the prime targets. You cannot help but be inspired when you see millions of people peacefully demonstrating and asking for their rights and asking for a role in who rules over them and what their government is doing. Tamara Wittes served as a State Department official working on democracy and human rights issues in the Middle East under President Obama. She closely monitored the rise of the Arab Spring protests, and much like Jamal Khashoggi, she was initially quite excited by them. And then there was the contagion effect, right? Egyptians saw what happened in Tunisia, and they went out in the streets themselves just a week after Tunisia's president fled the country. And then then Bahrain and Syria and Libya and Morocco and Jordan had demonstrations as well. And yes, that's all exciting. But not everybody in the U.S. government was excited. At the same time where I was sitting, okay, in the Regional Affairs Bureau of the State Department, This was a group of diplomats who had spent their entire careers building relationships with these very autocratic regimes. And so it was also incredibly disorienting for them and for an American foreign policy in the region that was structured for decades around relationships with autocrats like Hosni Mubarak in Egypt or the kings of Saudi Arabia. And the Obama administration was split down the middle. Here's Ben Rhodes again. He was, by then, chief of strategic communications for Obama's National Security Council. What was interesting to me is that some people looked at that and were afraid of it. (laughs) And and basically, almost all of the senior members of the national security team, Hillary Clinton and Bob Gates, probably chief among them, saw that as something to be feared, something that was a problem. Also having doubts about where the protests were headed, the vice president. Mubarak has been an ally of ours, and I I would not refer to him as a dictator. And weighing in from afar, the king of Saudi Arabia. And King Abdullah of Saudi calls Obama. And what was interesting about this is he made no pretense that there was anything at all legitimate about these protests. King Abdullah of Saudi calls him and he says, look, uh, the only people protesting are al-Qaeda, Hamas, the Muslim Brotherhood, and Iran. And those are the only people in the streets. And I don't understand why you're, you're 
White House spokesman is saying that the government of Egypt should listen to the Egyptian people because that's not the Egyptian people in the square. That's just a bunch of terrorists, basically. And it was such an obtuse and arrogant statement to not even, you know, and also kind of, to me, showcased how, well, this is the play they run on Americans, right? Oh, trust me, they're all just terrorists, you know? Um, that's why you have to keep giving us the money. That's why you have to keep selling us the weapons. You know, this is the heart, the rotten heart of the deal that America has been making for decades. And it was on that call. But officials in Washington, like Tamara Wittes, were soon reminded of another historical truth. Breakdowns in authoritarian regimes are not the same thing as transitions to democracy. And so it was in Egypt. In the aftermath of Mubarak's resignation, Mohamed Morsi, a leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, was overwhelmingly elected as the country's new president in June 2012. And chaos ensued. Here at the presidential palace, tens of thousands of people are here. These are the opposition factions. Mohamed Morsi came into power having made a set of promises to the U.S., but more importantly to the Egyptian people about appointing Coptic Egyptians and women to his cabinet, about forming a constitutional committee that would be inclusive and not dominated by religious figures, about governing in a democratic manner. And he broke every one of those promises sequentially between the time he was inaugurated in July and the end of that year. By the spring of 2013, demonstrators were back at Tahir Square, protesting Morsi's own undemocratic moves. While U.S. officials debated what to do, Morsi had, after all, won a democratic election, the Saudis and their allies in the United Arab Emirates didn't hesitate. Viewing Morsi and the Brotherhood as threats to regional stability and their own power, they encouraged the Egyptian military to stage a coup. It was no secret that the Saudis and Emiratis were pouring money into Egypt, uh, kind of stirring up this, you know, popular unrest against the Mercy government. But the reality is that they were pouring tons of money into Egypt to have this coup go forward. The Saudis showered the new government, headed by General Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the former chief of military intelligence, with $5 billion in aid. The ensuing crackdown was horrific. The chief justice of the Constitutional Court will declare before the court the early presidential election, where the justice of the Constitutional Court will run the state's affairs unit in the interim period until the new president is elected. I was targeted because I was I was uh, I was live tweeting what was happening uh, in the massacre. I, I, I a first bullet missed my head. Um, and literally, I I can feel the air of the bullet literally pass my head. Few experienced the harshness of the crackdown more than Mohammed Sultan, as you might remember from episode one. He would later become one of Jamal Khashoggi's closest friends and collaborators. In 2011, while a student at Ohio State University and a proud Buckeye football fan, Sultan had flown back to Cairo to celebrate Mubarak's ouster. 
But he took to the streets again two years later to protest the military coup and was shot in the arm and nearly killed when the Egyptian military began gunning down peaceful protesters on August 14, 2013. Killing nearly 1,000. For Mohammed Sultan, his ordeal was far from over. And then 10 days later, I get arrested from uh, my family home in the suburb of Cairo. 18, 20 men, plain clothed, uh, guns came down, you know, just literally broke, the, broke our house door down, came. I had three journalist friends that were with me. We were all arrested. I was uh, eventually sentenced to life in prison. Life in prison? Life in prison. For what? For tweeting. Literally, the charge is spreading false information to shake the grandeur of the state. And that was literally basically fake news. <laughs> uh, I gotta say, I've never, I've never heard of somebody arrested for tweeting before. Sultan, wearing a metal cast to protect an arm that was fractured during the massacre, was shuffled through three Egyptian prisons. I was interrogated, blindfolded. I was beaten on my broken arm. You would literally be handcuffed to somebody, another prisoner, and you would have to run through two lines of police guards with batons, belts, whips, and you would have to run through almost this maze, and then you have to go take off all of your clothes and face the wall. Sultan went on a hunger strike, but his Egyptian interrogators were determined to break him. They, they had spotlight for 36 hours so that I wouldn't fall asleep. Um, they had strobe light so that I basically would, you know, <laughs> uh, have a seizure and whatever the hell happens. Um, the officers literally would uh, uh, expose electric wires and told me, hey, if you're going to end your life, just hold these electric wires with both hands until, until you know, you make, you make it easier for both of us. Sultan was finally released in 2015 after his case got international attention and was championed by Obama administration officials and members of Congress led by Senator John McCain. But today, having returned to the United States, Sultan still suffers nightmares over what he went through. I still wake up, you know, almost five years later or four and a half years later after I've been released from prison. I still wake up in the middle of the night to, you know, slamming doors or shaking keys. Jamal Khashoggi was devastated by the experience of the Arab Spring. His hopes for a burst of freedom in the Middle East were dashed as new authoritarian rulers rose to power. When can we mourn the Arab Spring, he tweeted that July. He would later write, the eradication of the Muslim Brotherhood is nothing less than an abolition of democracy. It destroyed the chance for a historic change that might have freed the region from a thousand years of tyranny. At that moment, Jamal felt that the dream of creating a new trend in the Arab world and within the Saudi system evaporates. Wada Confer was the editor of Al Jazeera and was in close touch with Jamal during this period. And he started to write tweets and posts describing the situation as a coup and demanding that the Saudi Government does not support that, but to stand for democracy in Egypt. 
The Saudi leaders were not pleased by Khashoggi's bold stand for the crushed Egyptian revolution. And no one was more displeased than a young, impulsive prince just then starting his rise to power. He was an unusually ambitious member of the royal family with grand dreams of his own, and who would have no hesitation about using the brutal tactics of the Egyptian military against his own people. Next on Conspiracy Land. And so MBS sent him a bullet in an envelope as a lesson to, you know, here's what's going to happen to you if you don't do what I want. And people started referring to him as this Arabic phrase, Abu Rasasa, which sort of roughly translates as the bullet guy. And yet the young crown prince goes on a charm offensive in the United States and wows the guests at Secretary of State John Kerry's house. I was just, uh, you know, watching him... Uh, show a considerable virtuosity on the piano, on the keys. <laughs> Somebody had trained him well. While unleashing a bloody war in Yemen, slaughtering civilians using American weapons. It completely undermined the U.S.'s ability to speak with any moral clarity or any credibility as a serious, legitimate actor with values and interests that extend to the human beings of this region. That's next on Conspiracy Land, Episode 5, The Rise of the Bullet Guy. Conspiracy Land is a production of Skullduggery, the Yahoo News podcast I co-host every week with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman and the Brennan Center's Victoria Bassetti. In putting together this series, special thanks to Suzanne Smalley for yeoman's research and tracking down sometimes elusive interview subjects. And as with our past Conspiracy Land productions, a huge shout out to the folks at Long Story Short, executive producer Bob Ewell, associate producer Emily Russell, and editor Andrew Strassel, with audio recording and mixing by Aaron Hoffman and Evan Sevilla, and research by Josh Hall and Belinda Shaw. And of course, LSS Chief Jessica Stewart. None of this could have happened without their invaluable work.